Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura. That's A-U-R-A to get started today. Thank you for tuning in to Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Please note that the audio for this episode has been updated. However, it is still not to our standards. Please note that our more current episodes have much better quality. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Waltikins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. I guess we can just go right into what you got for us today. This is the murder of Tony Kuzmanovich. Another fun name to try to say. <laughs> and probably not saying it right. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> okay, so Tony Kuzmanovich, he immigrated from Serbia in roughly 1913, and he immediately went to work in the saloon business. Keep in mind, 1913, that's still legal. When Prohibition came, he continued on in the trade despite it now being illegal. He married a young woman named Anna, and they started a home of their own. At the 1927 State Fair, he sponsored a Wild West show. It was very well received. It cemented his reputation in the community as a minor celebrity. But any goodwill that he earned from this was quickly lost. On June 8th, 1927, agents seized six half barrels of spiked beer from his TK Cafe on Michigan Street. I just got to ask real quick, Mm -hmm. is spiked beer mean it's beer with alcohol? Yes, and I will explain it. Okay. They arrested him along with his bartender. Now, spiked beer, also sometimes called needle beer, is what they would do is they would have non-alcoholic beer. It was still legal to make non-alcoholic beer. So you'd get that. And at this time, it wasn't in cans. It was all in glass bottles and there'd be a cork on the top. So they'd stick a needle like a syringe in through the top of the cork and shoot raw alcohol into it, which is probably a terrible idea. I would also assume that it would just taste awful. It would probably taste awful. But this was the best they could come up with, besides actually making beer from scratch, to turn non-alcoholic beer into alcoholic beer. The agents take this stuff, they run it through their tests, and they find that it comes back at 3% alcohol. So not super strong, but strong enough. Tony and his bartender are arrested, and their trial is put on hold for a little while. The TK is padlocked immediately. (laughs) The first time they're striking out, you're getting the padlock. But they have a way around this. They open up the TK Cafe next door. (laughs) Keep the name too, right? They kept the name. And if it isn't obvious, TK Cafe is Tony Kuzmanovich Cafe. Okay. Okay. If anybody didn't catch that, that's why it's the TK. Now, he refused to say who his suppliers were. And he got sentenced to the workhouse for eight months. He began his sentence in January and was released a month early in August. Upon his departure, Tony and his wife celebrated by taking a short trip to Canada. It's now August 1928. Tony calls up his friend, Captain Hugo Schranz, at the police department. But he was unable to reach him. So he goes to the police department, and he asks for Schranz. He's not there. He asks for another friend of his, Captain Theodore Colster. He was also off-duty. Just to note here, this guy is friends with the local police. Prohibition agents, not so much, but he's got captains of the police <laughs> department that he can call up personally and, and chat with. 
That day, Kozmanovich closed up his restaurant at 3 a.m., the TK Cafe. He left with $800. That's how much he made in one weekend. And that's pretty substantial, actually. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that would be a nice chunk of change. Yeah. And he headed home with his wife. A car came alongside their car near the corner of 65th and Wisconsin. So, for those who don't know Milwaukee that well, that's sort of the west side of Milwaukee. A block from their home. The man yelled for Tony to pull over. He did pull over. And then the sawed-off shotgun was pointed at them. Assuming he was the target of a robbery, Tony reached for his money. But the man with the shotgun, perhaps thinking that Tony was going to be pulling a gun when he went for his wallet, never even gave him a chance. He fired. For a brief moment, Tony clutched his chest before going limp. The first person who witnessed this is a man named August Mack. And the only reason I include him, because this isn't important, is August Mack was able to tell the police exactly when the shooting occurred because he was in his bathroom at the time. (laughs) And when the shot went off, it started with him so much that he missed the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) This kid... What is wrong with journalists in these, these times? <laughs> but the fact it's 3 a.m., most people are asleep, but he was up, coincidentally, he had to take a midnight pee, so he could mark the time almost exactly. I'm just saying what it says. Anna, Tony's wife, got out and tried to get the other car's license plate number, but was forced back by the killer shotgun. She later said she thought it was an Illinois plate. Another man heard the gunshot and turned to see a blue car. He thought it had Wisconsin plates. Well, which was it? Wisconsin plates or Illinois plates? The difference might have actually meant something. Thought was, if it was Wisconsin plates, it was somebody local, and it was probably a robbery. If it was Illinois plates, well, then it was probably a targeted murder. Detectives responded before handing the case over to the sheriff, whose jurisdiction the crime was occurred in. Apparently, at this point in time, 65th must have been outside of Milwaukee city limits. I'm pretty sure it's in the city limits now, but it must have been outside then. So they hand it out to the sheriff. Anna says she thinks it's a robbery. District attorney says, I don't think so. I think this is part of a beer war between Milwaukee and Chicago. The sheriff, coincidentally enough, before Prohibition, had been a brewery manager. And when he ran for sheriff, he ran on the slogan, I don't want any dry votes. Which means, if you like Prohibition, don't vote for me. (laughs) And he was elected. He was elected sheriff. So, majority in Milwaukee voted for a sheriff that didn't want to enforce Prohibition. Understandable. Yep. A woman who said she witnessed some threats reported that a man from Chicago had told Tony that he was going to, quote, get him for spoiling a liquor deal. She said the man had said, I'll get you, Tony, and I'll get you damn quick for putting the skids on that liquor deal. So Anna was asked about Tony's liquor deals, and she insisted that he had not been involved in buying or selling a single drop of alcohol since he got back out from jail. She said that prior to that time, he had only dealt with one man, and she would not name that man. She said he was not a squealer and never had any trouble with this man. So, now, whether or not I believe that he stopped selling alcohol when he got out of jail, I find that very suspicious. Maybe. Maybe true. Mm -hmm. But very suspicious. An examination of Tony's bank records also revealed that he had written multiple checks ranging from $2,000 up to $5,000. In today's money, those checks would be between $27,000 and $68,000. Wow. That is some money. Yeah. Even to buy alcohol, that seems like a huge amount of money. I mean, I guess I don't know what the black market of alcohol was when Prohibition was going on. 
I don't know. And unfortunately, because the records are very, we're still very weak at this point. The records get much better once we hit the 30s. But at this point, the records are still pretty weak. So I don't even know who these checks went to. Mm -hmm. But when he's writing 20, 30, $60,000 checks by today's standards, that's some serious change. Yeah, that is some serious change in that if it wasn't alcohol, I'm going to guess he was involved in something shady. Well, oh, he's just a really good businessman. Yeah, I guess. Prosecutors interrogated inmates at the House of Correction, seeing if Tony had upset anyone there who might want to seek vengeance. They particularly focused on those housed in Rum Runner's Row in the jail, but no such person was found. And I believe we covered Rum Runner's Row in an earlier episode, where in Milwaukee, if you were in jail for being a bootlegger, it really wasn't like being in jail at all. <laughs> Was this the episode where we talked about where they were having big beer parties and yeah. stuff in the yeah. jail? Okay. beer parties and everything else in there. Yeah, okay. Now the sheriff took another angle. Maybe Tony had come to difficulties with another Milwaukee nightclub owner. The police had received anonymous letters concerning Tony's beer dealings and felt that they may have come from a business rival. Both the sheriff and the DA felt the gang angle made more sense than a robbery, given the weapon he used, a sawed-off shotgun, and the location of the shooting. I'm not sure why that matters exactly. But not to mention the failure of the attackers to even take any money if it was a robbery. Finally, a waitress from the TK comes forward. She reports that three men, two of them dressed very nicely, had steak sandwiches with coffee and pie two hours before Tony's death. They specifically asked which man was Tony, and she believed that they were sizing him up. The bartender verified that he had, in fact, made this order. He remembered these three men. A gas station attendant also said that he saw these same three men on that same day, and they were in a car with Illinois plates. So now they were going back to thinking Illinois again. A funeral was held out of Tony's home. This was actually really normal back in the day. The funerals were held at people's houses. One of his pallbearers was a police captain, and another one was a doctor. So again, this guy has friends who are well off and connect politically. The home was overflowing with flowers. The deputy sheriff and the waitress from the TK went to Chicago to look through the rogues gallery there. Rogues gallery is like a collection of photos of known criminals. She picked out one man who looked familiar to her. Meanwhile, the district attorney delayed plans to open Tony's safety deposit box. Anna said that it had not been opened in years, and she didn't even know where the key was. So it probably wasn't relevant. So we'd never find out what's in his safety deposit box. A few more days pass by, and then Tony's former cellmate comes forward to speak with the sheriff. Could not be reached sooner because he was in the county hospital. He said there was one man who Tony had such trouble with that he would go out of his way to avoid, quote, traps left by him around town. Based on this tip, the police began searching for a, quote, hophead or, quote, junkie frequented the dog track on Blue Mound Road. No word on if they found this guy. So what relevance this ends up having, do not know. No. <laughs> Ultimately, everything gets cold, the trail hits a dead end, and no one was ever arrested for the murder, as is usual. Anna lives on until 1964, so another 25 years or so. She's buried beside her husband at the Forest Home Cemetery in Milwaukee. So just a story, uh, you may have noticed there's actually no mafia stuff anywhere in this episode. But just an idea of another guy who's breaking prohibition laws kind of in the same neighborhood. And it's possible his killers were mob killers who were rivals of his. We don't know. But just in general, the time and the neighborhood, not a great place. Do you have any feelings on, if you were to guess, 
who you think would have. It almost seems like based on the story that somebody from Illinois put this hit on him. I mean, that's because I, I we have left as evidence. It definitely points that way. Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't seem like it would be a robbery because no. if it was a robbery, the wife would be dead, the money would be gone. Yeah, and there's really no reason to believe that a Milwaukee mafia member did it, but it could have been, and they just could have it the plates have, wrong. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. I don't know. Based on what I do know from other situations, you don't typically get into these gang fights because you're a business rival. I mean, unless you're like a big time, you know, really cutting into somebody's stuff. This guy's running his own little cafe. And that's, as far as we know, that's really his only deal. So no one's going to get too upset with him for running his own place. Where people tend to get in trouble is if they're getting a supply from somebody and then they stop paying or something like that. Because, yeah, this one cafe is not hurting anyone's business. Right. So exactly what would make him worthy of killing, I don't know. The evidence isn't there anymore, unfortunately. But it's not just him running a cafe. He had to have screwed somebody over on a deal somewhere. Where, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if just maybe he was a major pipeline for the alcohol. And that would explain why he was... Because, I mean, he would have to spend $60,000 on <laughs> yes, beer yes. in that uh, era. I mean, he might have had to have been pushing some massive beer out of yeah, his little cafe. Yeah, I, I agree. There's something fishy there. I don't know how big his bar, restaurant, whatever was, but I don't get the impression it's that big. Yeah. It would have to be the big, I mean, it would have to service the whole city for, for <laughs> wow. him to be kind of, well, I don't know you about know. That, but definitely, I but mean, I, when you call yourself a cafe, I, I'm picturing, you know, like a one room bar. You know, yeah. Like this huge establishment. Right. And the other thing that you talked about that I found interesting. So you were talking about how they take the beer and they just shot pure alcohol into yeah. it. Yeah, needle beer. So now, were they literally with somebody doing this and selling it to the bars? Because, I mean, to me, it would just make more the most sense that you would have the beer in your – the non-alcoholic beer in your bar. Somebody ordered it. You shoot the needle through and put the alcohol I in agree. it. I agree. I agree. And that strikes me as odd, too, because – Again, I mean, I have to rely on what I have. And they're talking about his suppliers. Yeah. And to me, I agree with you. Like, you don't need suppliers. I mean, I mean you'd go buy a stockpile of legal beer and stick your own alcohol in it. Because I don't, I don't know what the law was as far as buying, like, rubbing alcohol or whatever, but I have to assume you could. You could, yeah. And maybe his suppliers were the person distilling the pure alcohol and... So he was buying like the syringes from his supplier or something yeah, like maybe. that. And I don't know. Maybe. Or you, maybe you had to rely on a guy who knew the right amount so you weren't poisoning people. I really don't know. I wish I had a better answer to that, but I I just don't have the information. And the other part of it could be is they could have shot the alcohol in there, but then it had to sit for a certain period of time before it was okay to drink it. You know? Could be. Maybe that's I don't know. Where, why they would buy it like I'm not going to test this. Yeah, neither am I. <laughs> Just stick with your 10-year-old aristocrat, Brandy. Yeah, 10-year-old mm, aristocrat, Brandy. That wraps up this episode. Yeah, pretty you concise got any, little story there. You got anything else? No, if you don't have any questions, that's pretty much all I got. And then uh, next week, I've got the Terrible Jenna Brothers. The Terrible Jenna Brothers. Yeah. You want to you give them a little sneak peek into it or, or are you like, no? 
oh, well, the terrible Jenna brothers are terrible brothers who sort of had their own little mob in Chicago. And I don't want to get into that too much because this is not the Chicago Mafia podcast, but they had an incident where they hid out in Milwaukee for a while. So we're going to touch upon what happened when they did that. Very cool. So now everybody has something to look forward to next week. Yeah. Gavin, if you want to hit them up with our contact info. Yeah, you can always go to the website at milwaukeemafia.com where you can find all kinds of random things that I've written over the years. Or you can reach out directly with email, milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. Pretty much answer any question or comment you have. And thanks everybody for tuning in. And as Gavin said on the previous episode, please go to your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. It really helps us out as a show. Unless it's a one-star rating, then don't do that. Yeah. Just send us an email and tell us everything that you think is wrong. Yes. All right. Cool. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where HostGator comes in. HostGator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, HostGator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash HostGator today and let your online journey begin.